So, speaking of love, we've been talking for the last three weeks about love. We've been we've been trying to hone in on the Father's love. And uh, I remember going to a church service once, and the pastor stood up and said, "I want to talk today about the Father's love." But then I always want to talk about the Father's love. You know, that's kind of where I am too. The Father's love is the center of everything. The Father's love is the, I love this, sine qua non. Have you heard that one before? Without which none. It means that without this peace, nothing else makes any sense. Nothing else can propel us in our spiritual formation to where we really want to go. It's all about this peace. It's all about this love. The last few weeks, we've been trying to connect with it. We talked about the fact three weeks ago that you can experience this love in each other. And in this life, that's how we experience the love, is in each other. We talked about the fact on Mother's Day that it's modeled after mom. You know, it's mother's love that gives us the clearest indication in this physical life of what this love is all about. And then last week we talked about the fact that it's proved in graciousness. It's our ability to be gracious. It's our ability to be kind and generous and considerate and courteous and and giving the benefit of the doubt is when we have finally started to accept this love. And so there is a progression toward it. It's not something that we're going to be able to get our arms around all at once. Jesus' purpose we talked about last week is preaching the kingdom of God to all the cities. That's the way he put it in Luke 4. And we talked about the fact that this kingdom is this quality of life that we can experience when we are participating in God's love. So if that's the case, then it seems like we need to know what this love is. What's this love all about? How, how, how is it experienced? What is it really? Is it something completely different than we've ever experienced before? This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. But see, there's a catch. And I know we messed up the Lexio Divina this morning. Sorry, it's uh, something that we never... If you were counting, we never got to three. Sorry about that. But the scripture that, that uh, Frank read is one that I want to read again. Because in this scripture is buried the catch. Yeah? So he was at Ephesians 3, starting at verse 17. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. So here is Paul praying for his people, and by extension for us, to get this. See, it's not about getting the fact of God's love. The fact of God's love is that it's already here. We already have it. The fact of God's love is is that we own it. God has granted it to us. And it's not about getting facts about God's love because that keeps it abstract and keeps it distant from us. What we're trying to get is some kind of notion, I suppose, of God's love. Some concept of God's love that really brings it home, brings it down, brings it into a usable space. This is what Paul is praying for, but notice the catch. We can't understand it fully. There is no way for a human mind to grasp 
this love. This love is too great for that, what Paul says. This love is infinite. We're not going to be able to get our arms around it, our heads around it. In fact, here's the thing. Here's the dirty little secret. The more we try to understand God's love, the more we try to define it and to quantify it, the more that we are going to be pushed in the opposite direction, the less we are going to know. Because how can a finite mind grasp something that is infinite? This is the problem that we have. It's like those, uh, you remember those Chinese finger trap puzzles things that you had as a kid? It's a little woven tube, usually made out of, yeah, you put your fingers in and you start pulling, and the harder you pull, the tighter it gets, and you just can't get out. And the panic starts sets in when you're little, right? Because you're pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. Well, what you have to do is push in the opposite direction of your apparent escape, and then it loosens up and everything goes. This is exactly the kind of trap that our minds are in as we try to dive into intellectually to understand God's love. The more we push in that direction, the more we are held firmly in place, and we can't go anywhere else. Because the tools that we are actually using, our logic, our experience in life, our rationale, all of that is exactly what is keeping us grounded, imprisoned, really, in something outside of the fullness of this love. The only way that we're going to be able to really experience how wide, how deep, how far, how long, everything that Paul is talking about in this love is if we push in the opposite direction of our apparent escape. If we just take a leap off the edge And see what happens as we fall. Because nothing else that we can do is going to take us there. It's always going to be pulling us down, pulling us tighter and tighter as we go. When I was uh, in high school, I played two years of of football. Now you can look at me and say you realize that I sat on the bench most of the time, right? Okay, so this is the case with me. But I tried. And, And I'll tell you one thing that I did probably better than anybody on that team is I knew that playbook Backwards and forwards, inside and out. Yeah, you can see that about me, right? I studied that thing. I knew every play. I knew exactly what to do. I remember one scrimmage that we had, and, and I, was a, I was a split end, because at least I had some speed. So I'm split end, and they called the end around. So, of course, I knew exactly what to do. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting there at the line, standing there at the line in my stance. The snap goes. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I took two steps toward the line. The defensive end, he's backing up like he's supposed to do. I plant, I spin, I come around behind the quarterback, and there's the ball just waiting as if suspended in air for me. Slaps against my chest, I grab it, and then I cut for the line again. Perfectly executed play. And then I had absolutely no idea what to do next. <laughs> All those linebackers were waiting for me. You know, Cheshire Cat grins. It was just, bam. Here's the thing, right? Everything that it means to be a football player starts where the playbook ends. Do you get that, what I'm talking about here? Everything that it means to be a football player is happening after the set play. You're downfield. You got the ball. There's nobody telling you what to do anymore. You've just got to read the field. You've got to see what's happening. You've got to make your moves and improvise and enjoy the ride and see what happens. That's it. See, this is what's going on. Remember those ancient maps? Here be dragons. (laughs) 
Did you ever see a picture of one of those medieval maps or maps from the 16th, 17th, 18th century? And they would have pictures of sea monsters out there. Because all that, anything that was uncharted, anything that they hadn't gone to yet, there'd be dragons. There'd be dangers. We don't know what the heck is out there. Here be dragons. And yet, if we want to go someplace we've never been before, we're going to have to get out beyond the playbook, what we think we know. We're going to have to get off the edge of the map and go someplace we've never been. Some of you are uh, Game of Thrones fans. I've actually never watched the series, but we were talking about this, and someone said, yeah, just like the last episode of Games of Thrones. It's like, okay. And she said, one of the characters is like, what are they going to do next? And it's just like, well, what's west of Westeros? You know, the, the main kingdom, I suppose, that was in this thing. Well, nobody knows because that's where the map ends, you know? And that's where she wants to go. She wants to go west of Westeros to where the map ends. There'll be dragons out there, you know? There's linebackers out there. They don't like you. They're going to put you down. But if you want to explore the Father's love. You're going to have to jump off the map. That's the only way this is going to work. And this is what Jesus is really trying to tell us. Over and over and over again, with every story, with every image, with every teaching, if you really analyze Jesus, what is he doing? He's jumping off the map. He's jumping off what's familiar. He's jumping off everything that girds us and holds us into familiar territory. Because if we are really going to get this Father's love, we've got to get out of that box. We've got to be free-falling into something that is not like any other experience we've had in life. Not like any other kind of love that we've had in life. There is an alien quality, and I use that in the most affectionate way, alien quality to God's love. It is going to be unlike the things that we have experienced in this life. And so, if we're going to experience this kingdom, this freedom, as Jesus was talking about it, then we're going to have to do something different. If you think about it, a path to an unseen God is going to be paved with unseen stones. Because any path that you can see is only going to lead to a God that you can see, and that's what we call idol. We need, if we are going to really go to this unseen God, then we need to take a path that is not set. It's not within the playbook. It's not on our maps. Our maps can only chart what we already know, what we're already familiar with, and what has taken us to where we already are. And Jesus is trying to lead us to someplace else. We're going to have to jump off our maps. We're going to have to take a plunge off the end of our maps, and this is exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. What I wanted to do this morning, and I'm going to handle the uh, inserts a little bit differently, I think, as much as I can from now on. One thing that uh, someone pointed out to me is that sometimes the, some of the notes that I say or some of the key things that I say don't get recorded anywhere, and it's kind of hard to write down those notes. So if you notice, the three rules from last week are at the top of your inserts right now. For those of you who wanted those, the the rules of graciousness, the tests of graciousness. And this week, I'm just going to list the scriptural citations and the notes, and then Brandon's going to throw the actual verses up on the screen so that we can read them from there. 
But uh, hopefully you will go back and you will read some of these. You'll look them up. I hope that you will. And I hope that you'll look at them as you read them during the week and see if what I'm saying here really is applicable in your mind, in your heart, and and then see if it actually helps you as you're looking toward jumping off your own map, jumping off of what's familiar for you. But Jesus is amazing. And, and I'm hoping that even with these that we go through, and we're going to have to go through them kind of quickly, we'll give you just a taste, because this is just a sample of everything that he was trying to do to get us to understand how we need to go beyond. Beyond. Always beyond. And most of these are coming from Matthew 5. Big surprise. The Sermon on the Mount is the storehouse. It's the concentration of all this teaching. If you go back and you read all of Matthew 5, you'll see that I just picked just a few of everything that's there, but it's all pointing in the same direction. You think you understand this. You've heard of old this, but I want to tell you something different. I want to tell you where you can jump off this map. I want to tell you where you go when your play is done. Is Jesus trying to get this across to us over and over and over again? Take a look at Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. I know you've probably heard this one before. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, there's his formula. You have heard it old, of old said, but I am saying to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Okay, what is going on here? See, Jesus is trying to take us beyond our ethics, trying to take us beyond our morality, if you will. Our morality and our ethics define the way that we believe we're supposed to act, but it's within certain context. It's within the norms of our culture, and that changes all over the place. What Jesus is saying is that murder, as you understand it, as this wrong, as this ethical evil, is really the end of a process that you have been on. Not the beginning of it, and certainly not an event that's isolated in and of itself. The breakdown in the relationship started way back with the resentment. It started way back with that first angry thought. You're already guilty of losing the relationship then. And then it just progresses to the point that it finally escalates into physical violence. But what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to realize that we think if we just keep the code, we're safe. If we just keep the code, then we're saved. And what he's trying to do is tell us, you're just playing on your map. You're not going beyond where God's love really resides. If you can start to understand that it's the first stirring of anger and resentment that has already taken you off, and to guard that part of you and that sanctity of each relationship, you're going to experience a completely different type of love. A different type of connection. Not one grounded in the code, but one grounded in the improvised play in every moment that we have with each other. Take a look at the next verse at Matthew Matthew 5.23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. What's Jesus doing? He's trying to take us beyond religion this time. 
beyond the ritual practice this time. Because once again, we think we just keep the rituals. I show up to church on Sunday. I go to confession. I tithe. I do my rituals. I'm safe. I'm, I'm golden. I'm saved. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not even about that. Those are important as a communal exercise. But what's going on in the relationship? What's going on once again within your heart? And if you're leaving relationships in disarray, then it doesn't matter what you do in terms of your religion. Beyond religion, beyond ethics. Continuing on at 527, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Where are we going with this one? We need to get beyond the contract. Marriage is a contract. There are vows that were said. Those are the vows that are supposed to keep the contract. So if you haven't broken the letter of the contract, we're safe. We're good. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, no. Once again, adultery is the end of a long process that began with the first straying, the first breakdown of that relationship that your wife already knows and feels anyway. As soon as you are off the beam, bring it back. Be aware. Be sensitive. Be cherishing enough of the relationship to guard it that way. Not on the map. Not on the contract but just in the way that you are living the relationship and the love between two people. Once again, continuing on, 539. I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, how many of you would really do that? How many of you think that we're really... Isn't Jesus just kind of talking with some hyperbole here? Isn't this sort of a metaphor? You know, I don't really have to do that. But what is he really talking about? He's talking about any kind of personal affront. The, the slapping of the cheek, especially it would have been a backhand slap, the way that the, the Jews culturally would have handled these things. It, it is a personal affront. It's a demeaning, condescending type of offense from one person to another. This is what Jesus is really talking about. The slapping of the cheek is not necessarily to be taken literally, although it could be, especially in that culture. But we would understand it more as an insult. We would understand it more as an offense in which we feel completely justified to offend right back, right? Tit for tat. Jesus is saying, hey, where's the graciousness here? Where, what can we do differently? If we are offended... Is there a way that we can kind of deal in the benefit of the doubt? Is there a way that we can bring in some understanding of where they may have been coming from at that moment or what was going on so that we can stop the escalation before it starts? And once again, have the the sense of connection and community enough to move ourselves in a different direction. Jesus is trying to take us beyond justice, beyond just the balancing of the scales that retribution would require. And saying, hey, no, they can be balanced in another way, by killing with kindness, by moving in a completely different direction than the way we normally react to an offense or an insult. In the next verse, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Okay, how many of you are willing to do that in a legal setting, huh? Now, besides the humor here, because Jews only had two main articles of clothing, if someone 
sued for your shirt and you gave me your coat, you're basically naked. And so that's, that's kind of humorous, right? You're all laughing, I can tell. But in the first century, yeah, they would be laughing. Or if a little kid saw that right now, they'd be laughing. So there's humor here, but Jesus is trying to make a serious point as well. Not that you roll over and play dead in legal settings, but what he's talking about here is not to be standing behind the fig leaf of the law. How many times do we do that? What can we get away with within this code, within this particular map or playbook? What can we get away with? And I am safe because I am legal. And my lawyer says so. My lawyer has advised me. I know that I can stand on this. I'm good. But where is the spirit of compromise? Where is the spirit of of being cooperative, of being generous? Where is the spirit of being a peacemaker on all of this? In another place, Jesus says, if you and your opponent are headed to court to fight it out in the lawsuit, he says, stop there on the road and work it out. Come to some sort of settlement before you even get there because once you walk into court, everybody loses. This is Jesus' attempt to say, hey, it's not enough to be legally right. It's not enough to be legally covered and not exposed legally. There's a whole other dimension to this if we go beyond law. Look where Jesus is taking us, beyond ethics, beyond religion, beyond contract, beyond justice, beyond law. And then at Matthew 5.41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What's this referring to? It was Roman law for all their subjugated countries in the network of roads that they created, that if they were moving their military force from one one place to another, that they could conscript anybody that they needed. If they had a wagon, if they had something that they needed, they could conscript them to go a certain distance. We're calling it a mile here for the sake of English understanding. A certain distance. And then once that distance has expired, then you were released and they'd grab somebody else and take the next leg of the journey and so on and so forth. And Jesus is saying, if you are conscripted, if you are obligated to go the first mile, don't just do that. Go the second mile as well. Now, you have to understand how crazy this would be. The Romans were the horrible oppressors, right? They were the ones with the boot on the neck of Israel that they hated. And yet Jesus is saying... Don't just go the one mile of obligation, but take a second mile as well. You know, Jesus is trying to take us beyond mere obligation. Beyond what we think the call of duty is. And to move into a place where everything is different. Nothing special happens in the first mile. The first mile can be full of anger and resentment. Even as you do the thing that you're obligated to do, you're not happy about it. You know? It's kind of like that little girl at the table. She kept standing up and her father kept trying to get her to sit down. Finally, he yells at her. She sits down and she glares across the table and she says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. (laughs) That is the first mile. That's the first mile of obligation. We may be doing it, but interiorly we're not. When you voluntarily do the second mile, everything changes. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. You will get the notion of the Father's love in the second mile. Not in the first mile. Not within the contract. Not within the law. Not with anything you think you know. Take the second mile. Beyond obligation. Matthew 5:43 You've heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is not in the Bible anywhere, but this was Jewish tradition. 
Your enemy was someone that you kept the serpent in your heart, was the phrase that they used. You kept the enmity in your heart until they did what they were supposed to do, make amends, make restitution, did whatever they were supposed to. But until that time, they're your enemy, and you were obligated to continue to hate them until they did what they were supposed to do. So he's going against the oral tradition, not against what's written in the, in the Scripture. So you've heard it was said, you should love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is huge. This is huge. Jesus is now taking us beyond affection. He's taking us beyond the familiarity of close relationships, those we understand, those we get, those we have some sort of emotional tie with. And he's asking us to extend ourselves to others for whom we have no such tie whatsoever, maybe even an act of dislike, but to treat them exactly the same as we would treat those who are in our own household, those who are in our own tribe, our own community that we understand and we get. This is huge. The love of the enemy Jesus holds up as the highest form of love. Why? Because it's second mile love. Because it's out of contract love. Because it's beyond the call of duty, love. And everything changes when we move beyond and off the edge of our maps. At Luke 9, verse 59, he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. What in the world is Jesus talking about? How are the dead supposed to bury the dead? All right? Obviously, he's not speaking literally here. But even so, is that such an unreasonable request? Come follow me. Well, i got to bury my father. Well, yeah, go ahead. You know, Take until 4 o'clock, and then I'll meet you for dinner. Well, that's not really what's going on here. In Jewish tradition, to go and bury your father, given the, the, the import of honoring your father and mother, right there in the Ten Commandments, right? And the traditions surrounding that absolutely ironclad commandment would mean or could mean that you lived with them until they died. You took care of them, you honored them as you were supposed to, and then when they died, you could bury them. That could be years, right? Or, conversely, there were two burials in Jewish custom. The first one was to put the body completely unembalmed, into the tomb, let it decompose, and when it was completely decomposed, you went in again and you took all the bones and you put them in a box called an ossuary and you buried that. Maybe it was that idea. At any rate, what he's asking here is not something until 4 o'clock. He's asking for something that is protracted. And Jesus is saying, we've got to go beyond our traditions even. If you really want this, if you really want the kind of freedom that I'm talking about, the understanding of how deep this love goes, then even your traditions can be holding you back. Are you willing to lay those down? 
Obviously, Jesus is not asking for irresponsibility or dishonoring of family members. But he's trying to get people to see the reality of how traditions are also hemming us in and holding us back from being able to jump off the edge of that map. Just a couple of verses later, 961, another man says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that really seems unreasonable, don't you think? What, you can't even go home and and say goodbye? What in the world are we talking about? Okay, once again, in the context of what's going on here, what's really being said is, Lord, let me go home and put my affairs in order, which is a very different thing. That obviously can take some time. Again, is that an unreasonable request? Not on the face of it, necessarily. But what is Jesus trying to get at here? He's trying to get at that the attachments that we have in life can also be just like those Chinese finger traps. The more that you pull at them, the more that they hold you back. Are we willing to go beyond our attachments and see them for what they are and then be able to jump off the map? Are those things holding us back? Is getting our affairs in order, keeping our affairs in order, what is locking us down, putting the weights on us so that we can't fly? This is what Jesus is trying to get across here. Again, not to be uncivil to your family, not to be irresponsible to your family, but to recognize where you are being limited. Luke 14.26, the classic one that I know I use and hear a lot. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. To a Jew of that first century family was tantamount to survival. To be out of family meant that you weren't going to live very long. Everything was geared in that culture to living within the family group. Family was everything. The parents were everything. To hate your father and mother, okay, sana, the Aramaic word that Jesus uses here, means to prefer less takes a little bit of the sting out of it, has nothing to do with a malicious hatred the way we think of it. But think of what the point is that he's making. If you can't move beyond those family ties, if you can't see any kind of spiritual survival beyond that setting, then you aren't thinking big enough. You aren't allowing yourself to see beyond the edge of your map once again. Jesus is systematically taking down everything that holds and binds and seems familiar to us. Ethics, religion, contract, justice, law, obligation, affection, tradition, attachments, family. And then finally, at Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, someone came to him. In in Luke's version, we see that he's a rich young man or a rich young ruler. And he says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus turns and says to him, What are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Isn't this great? This is classic Jesus. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. See, he recognizes right away just by the line of questioning where this young man has already gone off the rails. What is good? What is he asking for? He's asking for the mitzvah. He's asking for the good deeds that need to be done in order that he may be within the code. 
And he's been doing that. So he says, okay, keep the commandments. And the young man says to him, which ones? And Jesus says, well, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? See, he's already been good enough. He's already done the good thing. He's already done all the mitzvahs that he could possibly do. There was nothing left to do within the law. But what he didn't recognize is that everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus, everything that it means to be a kingdom resident, starts where the law ends. It doesn't happen within the law. It's going to happen outside the law. And so Jesus says to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And of course the young man goes away sad because he's not ready for this yet. But if we literalize overly and we think that this is only about material possessions, we've missed the point. What Jesus is talking about is everything that we think we know that keeps us safe that keeps us within the context of where we think that we're saved, we need to be willing to lay that down. Jesus is trying to take us beyond obedience. It's a tragedy that Western Christianity has been just about obedience. It's seemingly so. All about obeying the law so that what? We can appease an angry God so that we can enter into the acceptance of God through obedience? And of course, this is not what Paul is talking about at all, and it's not what Jesus is talking about. Until we go beyond obedience and realize that just doing good things is never going to be enough, we will never be able to follow Jesus where he's really going and he's really time trying to take us. And so, I guess the question becomes, what maps do you have in place? What's driving your sense of security? Is it your ethics? Is it your family? Is it your religion? Is it how well you think you keep the law, keep the rules? Is it tradition? What is it? What Jesus is asking us to do is to look within, be ruthlessly honest with ourselves, and find out what it is that is binding us. What it is that creates the filter through which we look at this love and understand it as such. If we are stuck in law, then God's love is always going to look like a condition. It's always going to look like a contract. It's always going to look like quid pro quo. If we look at it in any other way than without all of these filters, we're going to miss how deep, how wide, how far, how broad this love really is. And Jesus is trying to help us to get into this pure state so we can do exactly that. He's trying to get us to jump off of the edge of our maps. And these are just the barest few examples. To go ahead and read again the red letters of the New Testament in the Gospels is to see this over and over. I hope that you got sensitized to it a little bit so that when you reread the scriptures, you'll see this is Jesus' MO. This is what he's doing over and over and over again, trying to get us to break through. I wanted to read one last thing to, to finish up with, and this is uh, one of the last pages um, from my book, The Fifth Way, and we read it on Wednesday, and uh, I wanted to read it here because hopefully this will just kind of may, maybe bring some of these ideas together. 
When Yeshua tells us, for those of you who are not familiar, Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. When Yeshua tells us not to resist an evil person, to offer our left cheek as well when struck on the right, to offer our coat as well when sued for our shirt, to walk a second mile of servitude when obligated only to go the first. He is telling us that being lawful and right is not enough. Being lawful and right is merely familiar, not godly or godlike. It does not show us the Father as Yeshua did with his fierce identification with the least of these. Being lawful and right is just a beginning, the barest beginning of a beginning. God is love. Doesn't do love as a verb, is love as a noun. Our behavior means nothing to such a love. It just is. Exists as itself. Can't be attenuated or diverted in any way. Is never withheld. When Yeshua reminds us that sun and rain, the warmth and provision of the Father's love, fall indiscriminately on both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, if we're not offended and outraged, we haven't been paying attention, haven't moved even within the vicinity of the Father's radical conclusion. Love that is earned or reciprocated is familiar. We know that, right? The Father's love is neither earned nor familiar, continues whether reciprocated or not. We can stand in the shade and shelter, deny its existence, but we can't stop the falling. This is outrageous, unfair, unjust. Exactly. God's love is not fair. God's love is not just. God's love deliberately unbalances the scales of justice in favor of the beloved, always in favor of the beloved. If we really want to follow Yeshua's way, the only way to the Father, we will have to pass through outrage and offense. Let our outrage at the furious nature of God's love burn until there is no fuel left within. Yeshua is telling us that nothing happens in the first mile, the familiar mile of obligation, of law and rule. It is in the second mile, the voluntary mile of undeserved love, that we learn something of our Father in heaven and ourselves on earth. Loving our neighbor brings us to the edge of all we cling to in fear. Loving our enemy puts us in free fall. Love like this cannot be transferred It's too radical, too perfect. It must be experienced to be believed. When we feel the first stirrings of compassion leave our heart in the direction of someone we believed impossible to love, when that compassion allows us to lower justice and blood pressure just long enough to give whatever is most needed in the moment, it's then that we first glimpse the equally impossible love our Father has for us. We will never really believe we can be loved and accepted until we experience giving love and acceptance away to someone equally undeserving. If we can't love the enemy, we will never know how God can love us. If we can't forgive the enemy, we will never know how forgiven we really are. The only way we can freely give something away is if we already possess it in the first place. And the only way that we can know for sure whether we possess a thing is if we can freely give it away. No strings attached. We can only love because he first loved us. 
It's an extending ourselves past what we think is right and correct and familiar. And we finally begin to experience what is possibly real. Let's pray. Father, your love is ungraspable mentally. But thank you for making it experienceable. That we can experience it in our relationships with each other and know where it comes from. That you loved us first and so we can love after as we let your love flow through us. Help us to get off the edge of our maps. Help us to not be afraid of coming to the end of the playbook and having to just live our lives in relationship, moment by moment, in real time, as things are presented to us. To use your guidance, your presence, to help us as we move downfield. That's what we want to do, Lord. It's a difficult thing. It feels scary. Help us to move past our imagined dragons and realize that in you, there's nothing to be afraid of. In you, there is constant provision. And in you, we can do this. Help us, Father. Help us to take that plunge each and every moment beyond the familiar into something different and exciting. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you so much for everything that you've given us and continue to give us. And as we prayed at the beginning, take us wherever you want us to go, especially if we don't know where that is. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.